Hello, and welcome to A Mighty Blaze podcast. I'm your host, Trisha Blanchett. A Mighty Blaze was created in 2020 to connect writers and readers in the age of COVID and beyond through hundreds of fun and fascinating interviews with best-selling authors, debut writers, and everyone in between. In today's episode, we'll hear insights from beloved Haitian-American novelist Edwige Dantica, author of Breath, Eyes, Memory, The Dewbreaker, Brother, I'm Dying, and many, many more. Her writing has been called powerful, heartbreaking, profound, and masterful. One reviewer says she has been laying waste to readers' hearts for more than 25 years. In today's episode, Ms. Dantica talks to fellow writer Nancy Johnson, author of The Kindest Lie, about creating art during a pandemic, her writing process, and the special joys and challenges shared by writers of color in America. So settle in and enjoy as I pass the blaze torch to Nancy and today's very special guest, Edwige Dantica. Everyone and welcome to Frontliner Friday. I am Nancy Johnson. I'm the author of the debut novel, The Kindest Lie, which is coming out February 9th from William Morrow, HarperCollins. And I'm so excited to have all of you here with us. You are in for such a treat because we are joined by an absolute icon, a legend in literature, the great Edwige Danticat. So we are delighted to have Edwige with us. And if you are one of the uninitiated or you just don't know, let me tell you a bit about Edwige. Edwige Danticat is the author of several books, including Breath, Eyes, Memory, an Oprah Book Club selection, Crick Crack, a National Book Award finalist, The Farming of Bones, The Dewbreaker, Create Dangerously, Claire of the Sea Light, and her latest, Everything Inside. She is also the editor of The Butterfly's Way, Voices from the Haitian Diaspora in the United States, Best American Essays 2011, Haiti Noir, and Haiti Noir II. She has written seven books for children and young adults. Her memoir, Brother, I'm Dying, was a 2007 finalist for the National Book Award and a 2008 winner of the National Book Critics Circle Award for Autobiography. She is a 2009 MacArthur Fellow, a 2018 Ford Foundation The Art of Change Fellow, and the winner of the 2018 Newstat International Prize and the 2019 St. Louis Literary Award. So a very impressive bio for a very impressive author. Welcome, Edwidge. Thank you, Nancy. Thank you for having me. And congratulations on your book. Oh, thank you so much. Exciting. Yeah, I should be thanking you because, I mean, when I look at you and the example that you've set, the bar you've set for storytelling and literature, I feel like I stand on your literary shoulders. So I want to thank you, too, for that. Well, it's all a lineage, right? Like I stand on the shoulders of some great giants, too, that so it's uh, it comes to all of us. Thank you. Yeah. Let's start off by talking about this. how are you doing right now? And we're all in quarantine and isolation. So what's this period been like for you? And how are you staying sane and centered through it all? Well, I've been, I've been here in Miami, where I, where I live um, with my two daughters who are in school online, even now, um, and, and my husband. And we've been, you know, we also live with my mother-in-law, uh, who's in her 80s. So we've been very careful. We haven't, we have a little bubble with uh, uh, two other families <laughs> that we get out to the beach with. And so we've been really staying sane by going to the beach and um, been doing a lot of reading, some writing, mostly nonfiction. Um, and, uh, but the, the, downfall of my sort of this time is that I've become a news junkie. I was always a news junkie. <laughs> oh, I know. Yeah. But I've become more of a news junkie because we do live in this environment where you feel like, oh, if I, I'm not watching the news, something could happen that I like in the five minutes that I've been away. 
So I've become a kind of a news junkie. I really need to get over that, but I just like absorb too much of the news. How about you? Yeah, I'm, I'm the same way. Yeah, it's been tough. I have an elderly mom. And so I've been spending a lot of time with her, just trying to keep her safe. And then, you know, coming back to my apartment and doing things here, you know, with my day job. So it's been a lot and just so much stress with, you know, the pandemic and then the racial unrest and just all this other stuff on the news. I'm a news junkie too, as I'm a former reporter, so I cannot Ooh. turn away from it. But um, yeah, but trying my best to, you know, stay sane through it all. Um, let's start off by having you show us your book, hold it up for us and tell us a little bit about everything inside and about the beauty on the pages within. Well, everything inside is a collection of stories and all the stories somehow revolve around love, right? And um, love, uh, love of country, love of family, romantic love. And that's why actually one of the uh, epigraphs is by Nick, the great Nikki Giovanni, where she, uh, it says, we love because it's the only true adventure. So everyone is kind of going on an adventure of love through the book and the title Everything Inside actually comes from, you know, I live in a gentrifying neighborhood around here called Little Haiti. Um, and one day I was walking down the street and one of my new neighbors had a sign that says nothing inside is worth dying for. And there was a gun in the middle. And I realized it was kind of like a warning, stay away sign. And my writer head I started revising that sign like shouldn't it be everything inside is what the, and then I thought I want to write a story around that that thing and so it's you know it's really literally like everything inside a person's soul everything inside a body in some cases but you know everything inside we we, we revolves around someone trying to love somebody and sometimes succeeding and not and sometimes not succeeding Oh, interesting um, story about how you got the, the title and the inspiration for the book. And you talk about love. I also noticed that death is also something that um, I see recurring in the book, too. Talk to me a little bit about um, the, the focus on death as well. And how does death teach us how to uh, live and to love? Mm. Well, you know, the book that I wrote before this book was a nonfiction book called The Art of Death, Writing the Final Story. And it's a book that I ended up writing after my mom passed away. So um, that, that death, I was, I was in that mindset, you know, and um, I, I think the, um, you know, the Louise Gluck, the poet who just won the Nobel Prize, when one of her poems there's a line that how do I know it's like I'm paraphrasing badly but it says how do I know you love me if you're not grieving me uh, it's something like that and and I just remember uh, seeing that a, so a while back and and then you know it's it's kind of that kind of love the way love is connected and uh, with separation which is certainly something that happens a lot in in migration right um, whether it's the great migration in this country or these these other migrations that we're seeing now with immigration all over the world, you know, and that we'll see more of with climate and other uh, issues, environmental issues. So, yeah, it's um, death is certainly a part of life, as so many of us know, and as so many of us are thinking right now with the precarity of life. You know, so many of us have lo lost people we know or love to COVID-19 and that suddenly you know it's like every day now I mean whether we like it or not every day now we live with death as a as a constant reality as a constant fear you know it's not as distant as it was so just as you were saying for your mother and just with my elderly mother or the even my children so much of the way we manifest love now is by keeping the people we love safe from what can potentially be death Oh, that is so powerful. You're right. We are so focused on death right now with more than 200,000 uh, Americans who've lost their lives to this uh, deadly disease. And we're, you know, we're faced with our mortality. And that's something we don't usually like to talk about or think about. Um, so I was really fascinated, really, by all the stories in the book. But there's this one um, powerful scene um, where a man named Arnold is falling to his death. And I just was holding my breath reading that. Um, because I've thought about death, obviously, you know, many times in my life, 
but it seems like you just captured so perfectly what that experience would be and what the reflection process would be. So do you mind just reading a very short um, passage to us from uh, that scene? So this, this is a story called Without Inspection, in, in which a man is literally uh, falling from the sky. It took Arnold six and a half seconds to fall 500 feet. During that time, an image of his son, Paris, flashed before his eyes. Paris dressed in his red school uniform shirt and khakis the day of his kindergarten graduation. That morning, Paris's mother, Darlene, had skipped around the apartment changing dresses as if she were the one graduating. Closing his eyes tightly as the hot wind he was plunging through battered his face, Arnold saw Paris at the classroom ceremony. He saw himself too, standing next to Darlene, who had finally chosen a billowing sapphire-colored satin dress. He was in the one black suit he wore to everything, to weddings and to funerals. One reason not to own too many things was their crammed two-bedroom apartment, but the other, at least for him, had to do with never wanting to feel bound. To feel attached to a few people was fine, to Paris and to Darlene, who were as much a part of him as his blood was, but he never wanted to be tied to things, to clothes and shoes, gathering dust and packed closets, to a fancy car that required hefty payments every month. No, it was simpler to be free, as free as this fall, which he had neither intended nor chosen. Wow, that is powerful. It took my breath away Thank just you. listening to you read it again. Like, where do you draw from to create something um, that powerful? Well, I was, you know, when I first moved here to, um, to Miami from New York, I was born in Haiti, but moved to New York when I was 12. And I moved down here about uh, in 2002, so 18 years ago. And at that time, there were two things that were happening a lot. Uh, people were coming by boat, uh, both from Haiti and from Cuba. And in a new kind of migration, it wasn't like previously, at least for the people who were coming from Haiti, in boats that they had made themselves and crossed on, but it was their speed boats. So they were you know, there are people who are trafficking or who they had paid and they would drop them sometimes right when they could see land, but didn't quite make it. And a lot of people died just in that small stretch, you know, because they couldn't swim. And then there were people who were working, immigrant uh, men, mostly men who were working, building these buildings that to me seemed to go up miraculously quickly. So, you know, in three months you would have a whole building, but the people who were building them were immigrants who would not be able to even afford um, the, the prices of these types of buildings. And every once in a while one would fall from the construction site and it was always a horrific death and the statements were always the same, you know, and I, and I had in my mind, you know, these sort of, um, uh, I guess the literary ancestry of uh, characters like uh, Macon Dead and, and uh, Song of Solomon by Toni Morrison with, you know, and this notion of flight and, so I knew that I wanted to write about someone who was confronting a situation in which they were falling, but wanted to extend that moment beyond death. Like, what would they be thinking? What would they be looking at? And for each of us, you know, that expression of your eyes, like your life flashing before your eyes, yeah. you know, different things would flash from, for us and maybe different things would flash at different moments in our lives. So I really wanted to explore that sort of like that small window uh, between life and death and and this man's really ex, you know very strong desire to want to extend it because he didn't want to leave behind the people he loved yeah and it's so interesting too that you write about the people who are sometimes sometimes fall through the cracks that other people don't always um, think about um, so I want to talk a little bit about our origin stories um, you know I am a descendant of slaves you know my great-grandfather was born uh, a slave here in America and it was freed at the age of 10. And so, you know, that's not ancient history. You know, I'm not talking about great, 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 you know, so that shapes the way I view America and my relationship uh, with this country. It shapes the things that I write. Um, and I know that your origin and your history is very much rooted in Haiti. 
And how does that origin define you and shape the things that you write about? Yeah, I think um, one of the things that I think we both share in terms of this, this origin, I always think of your presence or my presence here as somebody's dream, mm. right? Yeah. This, is, this is why, you know, they fought, they, stay, they stayed alive just yeah. so that we could be here. Uh, so it's something that I try to really instill in my, you know, in my children too, that you are the realization of somebody's dream as imperfect as it may be, but just the fact that you're alive, they, they just really, when you think about like for, for both of us, like the cause of the slave ship to get to the side of the world, like how much, you know, desire for survival must have been, that's what is in us. That's why we're here. Um, and so that, you know, history is, is like ancestorship, you know, that's a very strong part of what guides my work and, and, and which is part documenting that history, or even if we are not directly talking about that history, the shadow of that history, because as just as you said, it's not ancient history because there are so many echoes of this in our, in our current lives, right? We see it all the time, like the legacy of both the joy, as you know, Imani Perry wrote a wonderful piece during the, after George Floyd was murdered about about how the African-American experience is not just about pain, it's also about joy. And yeah. which is something that we're also always saying about like the Haitian-American experience, that it's also about joy. It's about, you know, it is a, it's a story born out of revolution, but when which people were punished after, but there's also, you know, we've also created beautiful art. We've also created beautiful music, you know, and, and, um, and at, at one point was an inspiration you know, remain like that story of that revolution remains an inspiration to the world. But at one point was a concrete example with, of what enslaved people can do to free themselves. So um, I think we are all like daughters of the, of, of these, you know, of this wonderful legacy that it sometimes, you know, it's worth reminding ourselves, at least reminding the next generation, you know, of, of what, of what we can do of, of, of what, what the people who came before us have done and also the possibilities that, that we, we, you know, of, we can do to maintain our survival. That's so true. And that is so empowering. And I think it may have been Maya Angelou who said that you are the hope and the dream of the slave. And, yes, yes. You know, it's, I'm, that's always with me, you know, in the difficult moments and like trying to write a book, publish a book and do these things. It's, it, it feels like it's larger than me, you know, and that it's yes. like I'm carrying a people, you know, those who came before me and those who will come after me. I'm like, I'm carrying all of us with me on this journey that I'm on. And I think that just makes it that much more meaningful for me, you know? And I love what I you said do. about the uh, joy too, because it's like, we are larger and bigger than our pain and bigger than our oppression. Um, yeah. And there are so many conversations about that, about what we write and how we write um, about joy as well as pain. Yeah. And I, you know, one of, I always go back I go back constantly to this essay by Alice Walker, you know, in search of our mother's garden, where she talks about, um, she urges us to imagine like what our uh, foremothers who wanted to paint, who wanted to sing, who wanted to write, but couldn't, right? And how they found these alternative ways of doing it through their quilts, through their gardens, through their baking, you know, which a lot of people are doing um, now in quarantine, yeah, right? Yes, yeah. um, so there are just all these other ways of expressing ourselves, which, you know, Zadie Smith in this new book she has called Intimations talks about like, you know, baking and quarantine as something to do, you know, that's, that is on equal par with, say, you know, with writing per se. Yeah, yeah. I've been thinking so much, um, just with everything going on in the world and the country right now about what it means to be American. And, you know, you have Haitian and then you have American and then there's the hyphen in the middle and that's the, the duality. And I'm just curious, what is it like for you to kind of live on that hyphen between the two? Well, you know, a couple of years ago, um, Julia Alvarez, who's from the Dominican Republic, she wrote a, a book called Something to Declare in which she talks about this hyphen as a kind of island. Oh. 
unto itself. And um, Lydia Vega, another writer, uh, said something similar. So I think that that high, there, there's there's that way of looking at it, the sort of the hyphenated identity that so many Americans um, have. And then um, I recently, doing the the Quelli, the Quelli uh, Festival, interviewed uh, Lila Lamani, who wrote a book called Conditional Citizenship, where she talks about these types of also the citizenship that um, the, the the hyphenated citizenship that is so that is seen at also um, as a kind of you know citizenship that can be taken away right like um, it's sort of like given to you by a certain uh, on a certain condition and for for immigrants especially immigrants of color now it almost means like at any time it can be taken away because you filled the form out wrong because mm -hmm. oh, or someone can always remind you that you don't belong, you know, and I think that's also the, the kind of environment we live in that, that um, so many citizenships that we thought like were set, like you're a citizen, you're like all Americans. And then, and then someone is like, Oh, you know, wait a minute. <laughs> it's yeah, not so fast. You're not. It's conditional. Yeah. Exactly. And you're supposed to shut up and just be grateful on top of it all too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's been so much going on in our country, like over the past three and a half years in particular, you know, we had the Muslim ban, we had the, you know, treatment of migrants and asylum seekers at the U.S.-Mexico border. You know, then we have a president who has called people who, or countries where black and brown people come from, s-hole countries. You know, it's just been on and on, and it has been more than ever unbelievably difficult to be black and brown in this country. And I'm curious, how does all of that influence your work and your art? You know, does it empower you or um, inform what you write? Well, I, I think it, most of us as individuals, you know, as a citizen, of course, you react to the news, especially yeah. if you're excessively watching it. And also, I think as a, you know, for me as a parent, that's usually my first reaction to what, what's happening. It's as a, as a person, as a parent, as a sister to three brothers, you know, as a mother to two black girls, as a friend to many uh, black and brown people, you know. So when the Muslim ban happened, for example, we had a group of us went to the airport when they had those uh, protests at the airport. You re my first reaction, if it's possible, is that way to try if at all possible, to physically show up, right, in, in some way. And then the writing is the next, you know, it's like writing is, is another way of participating. Um, and part of the writing for me, too, is not always coming out and saying, well, this is what I think, but trying to find stories in the community that I can tell of people who are actually going through some things or people who, like, parents who might about to be separated from their children because of the, the temporary protected status was taken away or just trying to also tell these stories around me to be a witness as James Baldwin said. So I think that's kind of, that's the way that that's been, you know, and so I wrote a couple, like I wrote a, I, I try to write from this view of this, not just me, but also to try to include people in the community who may not be able to write like articles or and so forth to see what are those stories and, and try to also incorporate that in what I'm, in what I'm seeing. Um, so I, I, I'm really curious, for example, to see what comes out of this era for so many writers, right? Yes. Because it's probably the first time that we're all living through all these things together, you know, because even, you know, after George Floyd was killed, you watch, you watch the television and you could see protests in London, protests in Paris, protests in Syria, protests, you know, reaction to this. And at the same time that we have the COVID. So we're all sort of going through these common, you know, and this election, God help us. <laughs> and so we're all like, like, of course, these things affect us, you know, in our daily lives differently, but we're all kind of, we have a sort of a, a, a common, uh, bar of trauma that we're all going through together so i'm i'm very curious to see like what art emerges out of that but for me 
um, it's more of like reflections and witnessing and observing. Um, and but I would be very curious in ten years to see what what kind of novels people will be writing about this period of time. Yeah, I definitely agree with you on that because I think you're right with the pandemic. You know, everybody's not rushing going out. You know, leaving the house as much to go to work. They may be working from home or they're not heading to a party on the weekend. You know, everybody is confined and we're all here in the space together and we're experiencing all of it um, together, uh, which makes it unique for sure. Um, Toni Morrison, the late great Toni Morrison had a quote in response to another time of great upheaval in society. And I know she said, this is precisely the time when artists go to work. There is no time for despair, no place for self-pity, no need for silence, no room for fear. We speak, we write, we do language. That is how civilizations heal. Heal, yeah. Yeah. So I, yeah, I've always loved that quote of hers, and I've been citing it so much really since the beginning of that. It's, it turns out it's harder than it sounds. Yeah, it's true, that's true. Yeah. But, but it's, um, we do language that is how civilizations heal. I think it's so, it's so powerful because we have so much healing to do um so I, I i just i i think it's really important that she also in the nobel lecture talks about how language you know divisive language you know can can shatter us too mm -hmm. so um so it's very important that we see both sides to it and she's offered us both sides how you know you can do language in a way that's healing that's building that's uplifting but, and, and God knows we're surrounded also by so much destructive and befuddling and belittling and racist, homophobic, transphobic, all these different types of, you know, like destructive type of language at the same time. So it's even more important to do this kind of language that, that does heal civilization. Like that means different things to, to each one of us. To some of us, it's comedy. To some of us, it's prayerful. To some of us, it's lyricism. To some of us, it's poetry. But um, I think it's very, you know, I, I think Toni Morrison, like when I reflect on her life, I feel like she gave us uh, guidance for each of these moments. <laughs> that were, she did. That were, were for us. Yes, exactly. Yeah. 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 And I love how she is still guiding us and that her wisdom is still with us now and that we're using it yes. to fool us. And this, this month, I think this week is the, it's a big anniversary for the bluest eye. Mm. Um, and there, there are different people who are doing like a read through of the book. So it's, yeah, she's still, she's still with us. And that's, that, that's, that's what ancestors are. And that's what ancestors do, right? They're, they're not with us physically in the body, but they continue to guide us in some way. Yeah. And the bluest eye is my favorite. So yeah, good to hear that. Like I still think about Picola Breedlove and, you know, in her life, and yeah, yeah. I recently had to, uh, but not had to, but I reread it um, when my daughter was reading it for the first time for school, and I, it's so powerful. I mean, really, she was so amazing on every line. You know, every sentence was, was a, like a, a, a jewel from her. It really was. Um, and another thing, just as a debut author, um, you know, I've worried a lot in writing my book about how I represent my community and how to do it well. And in some ways it felt, it was sometimes stifling to feel that I don't wanna make a mistake. I don't wanna misrepresent my community or mischaracterize them. And so I'm curious about whether you uh, have felt that at all in your writing process or dealt with that. And if so, was it ever paralyzing for you in the beginning? Oh boy, did I ever, you know. <laughs> I wish, I hope for you and I want, I'm curious to hear how that was, but I felt in the writing as a debut author, the freest I had ever felt in my whole life doing something. And, the, the, and that freedom came from like, I was writing it for me, there was really no one waiting, I was writing for the love of it. And then when I went out with my book, I got a lot of pushback because in Breath Eyes Memory, which is my first book, there's a, you know, the mother is obsessed with virginity and she tests her daughter's virginity so and then people i think when people read us you know we're talking about alice walker she certainly faced this when people read um black women writers or you know women 
immigrant writers or women of color, they think, uh, oh, you're an anthropologist, you're a sociologist, right? It's like, like you, you're, you, it's as if they think you lack the imagination to like, okay, oh, this is like, you're telling your life. You, I mean, you could be telling part of your life. So, and then, so my, I had, you know, people from my culture were like, oh, you've told these white people all these things and they keep asking me if that's happened to me. <laughs> right, right. So it was, it was kind of, it, it was very difficult. And I, and I feel like I learned from that. But eventually you have to tell the truest story you can, right? You told your truth or you told your character's truth. It's not always going to be funny. And, you know, and it's, it's sometimes we have to tell difficult stories. So um, I would, I mean, I, do you feel at, do you feel at ease with what, with yourself? I mean, you, it's normal to have some level of nervousness because we want to protect our community, right? Yes, yes. And, and so, but how do you, how do you feel now? Like that you can't change anything. <laughs> I can't do anything now. It's done. <laughs> I know. I, I feel at ease about it or somewhat at ease now, but there are still so many like within the black community who haven't read it. I mean, I've had more white people reading this book than black people reading it. And maybe, you know, that was a, on a subconscious level. I did that because I was, I've been afraid. Um, and also have. publishing is very white. So yeah, publishing is very white, right? really so I didn't have any, uh, you know, choice in the matter. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah, but I think also there's, there is still a bit of trepidation about um, how they will feel about it. I mean, my main character is um, a black woman engineer who um, is very successful, but she had a baby when she was 17 and left that child behind, you know, in the dying Indiana, you know, factory town that she's from. And so I kept thinking, okay, I've got some flashbacks to her as a teen mom. You know, am I saying that this is who black women are? And uh, oh no, you know, and I thought about some of those <laughs> things, and you know, just worried about that. And I've had other black authors say that you shouldn't worry because if you've created yeah. complex characters and they're, you know, they're full that you know, and, that's not a caricature necessarily. And you're not going to be able to change how people read it. You're saying that's who this black woman is. That's true. Right. And I think now people, we've, you know, we've had high profile black women from the first lady yeah. to women in space. So I, I feel like if somebody would immediately jump to that, if you've created a really complex nuanced character, that says more about them than about, than about you. Um, I did like for myself, I felt guilt. It was my first book too. And I felt I did have a certain level of guilt, but I think what it, what it, pushed me is that, okay, then I have to work harder at being more complex. Not that I knew that I would change people's minds, but um, I, like I always tell uh, people, like young writers, I was like, not everybody who criticizes you hates you. <laughs> always crazy. <laughs> I'll try to remember that when the reads reviews uh, and the yeah. Amazon come in. Right. Well, stay away from those. I mean, That's what they tell me, but I can't yeah, help. I know. Cause I, well, there's someone was telling me, another writer was saying, um, well, if other people are reading them, I should, read them. <laughs> I should know what they're reading. I should know what they're saying about what me. they're saying. But I mean, I, it's just like sometimes they, not every, that's the, it's a very obvious lesson. And I feel like it's one that I'm always trying to, in my growth, sometimes it feels like they know it better than me, but I'm always trying to like, try to teach them, like, not everybody is going to love what you do. They're very gonna, true. Very you know. true. I do want to take a quick moment just to say for the people who are watching out there, um, please leave uh, questions for Edwige in the comments and I'll get to those questions, uh, you know, hopefully very shortly. So please, I know she's anxious to uh, hear from you and to answer your questions. Um, I just want to talk a little bit since we have talking about, you know, me being a debut author, I want to talk about writing. Uh, tell me about your writing process. I mean, we have a lot of writers I know who are, watching this right now, and also readers who are fascinated, I think, about how the sausage gets made in the writing world. Well, I think uh, when folks ask that question, I always think, like, I, I want to give a caveat, like, the most important thing I think about anybody's process, you have to, you have to work around the life, you have to write around the life you have, right? And you have to do the best thing that works for you. Like, if I say my process is to sit by a beach, you know, with my Mont Blanc and my very special notebook. Don't listen to that. <laughs> or that cabin in the woods. Exactly. You know? That's, you know, you don't, if you, you don't have to do that thing to, to write your book. You just like, sometimes you might be doing it standing at the, 
you know, at the kitchen counter, because that's the life you have. And, you know, at the Quelly Festival too, there was a wonderful conversation with, with Mickey um, Sini and her friend, uh, I'm forgetting the name of the other writer. They had a wonderful conversation about how um, at the, the other writer was like writing at stop signs, right? Mm -hmm. At, um, and it's just like you have to do what you have to do to get your work done. But my process is usually, I think about something for a long time. And then once I think I have a beginning and an end, I start going um, to try to write towards the end, you know, and sometimes- But do the characters come to you first or the, um, the theme or what, what comes depends. first? Yeah, sometimes yeah. it's a line. Sometimes it's a, you know, like with that situation, it was like seeing that sign. Um, sometimes it is one character, like with my book, Claire of the Sea Light, it was like, I had this image of this young girl um, and I started kind of following her around, you know, um, in my mind. And then I start writing um, and I try to do a draft and just to go through without stopping. And then I go back and layer. I, I find a lot of my, like the real true work for me comes in revision. Mm -hmm. And revision is more than just like fixing up sentences, but like layering and adding once I know where the story is going. Yeah. Do you enjoy revision more than the initial drafting? Of course, because I love having something to work with. <laughs> Other than the blank page. Exactly. I think, I think when you're the initial drafting, you're really kind of flying blind, right? It yeah. could, and I always have this nervousness when I'm, when I'm like on a first draft that I'm, I can lose the book at any time, yeah. right? That it's just like, oh, maybe there's not much there. And I've had a lot of things like that where it's like, I thought it was a novel and it ended up being a short story. Um, so you feel that fragility until then there's a moment where you're at towards like at a point where you're like, Oh, I can see everything that happens from yes. here on. And then you start feeling more secure, but I get super nervous at this moment where it's like, Oh, is this really worth my time? And there's always that jumping back and forth between your real life and the writing life where, especially if crazy things are happening in the world and you're just like, wow, my God, is this the best use of my time? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> you're like, should I be calling my congressperson right now or should I be yeah. <laughs> working on this book? Yeah. Mm -hmm. That's so true. And you mentioned the beach and uh, <laughs> so you live in Miami and uh, uh -huh. little Haiti. So do you write at the beach or where do you write? Oh my gosh. I'm like, <laughs> I'm so like I'm one of those people that if I never had to come out of my house, I wouldn't like for, I, so I'm not, I'm only probably social because I, I have social children. <laughs> um, so I write, I write where I'm talking to you from. I have this thing behind me is something I, I got to block out the light from the windows. It's like a room divider and I have a desk in front of me and this computer that I'm talking to you from. Is where I mostly write. Sometimes I will write in my bed I, because I do long, I write longhand first. Okay, I was gonna ask um, you that if you draft, you know, longhand or on the computer. Yeah, I do, I, I do longhand. I have a lot of notebooks um, and I find because I'm a, like the first time I used a computer, I was in college where you had to actually go to the student center to sign up for hours. <laughs> so I was typing my papers like I think it was like mid like a junior in college where I started writing for me a computer so I still have that feeling that I have to bring something to the computer okay. like, that I then like so so my revision starts with typing from longhand mm -hmm. and it has been a long illustrious career for you um, can you think back to when you were a debut author and go back there when you were first putting your book and your work into the world and now looking through the tra trajectory years later, what would you tell yourself back then as a debut author, the thing that you know now that you wish you had known then? Oh my gosh, I, I got the best advice as a debut author, you know, from my editor then Laura Ruska at Soho Press. Um, so it was a very different world then, you know, it was only print reviews, there was no Amazon, there was no, you know, internet. <laughs> Uh, so it was basically, you know, you were going to be reviewed in the paper and the paper was in, you, you know, you had to literally like they sent me clippings at the end of the month of the, of the reviews. So, but Laura told me, I, and so when my book was about to come out, I had, my book was uh, 
Breathize Memory was my thesis for my MFA. And so I went from my MFA to working for a film production company for Jonathan Demme, who did Silence of the Lambs. And uh, he worked a lot in Haiti. We worked on some documentaries. So I had an office on Broadway, not too far from my publisher. And I remember um, when she had the galley for me, Laura Ruska, my editor, walked over maybe about five blocks from her office. And she came over to my cubicle at um, Clinica Estetico, Jonathan Demi's office where I was working. And she said, she said, you're going to have um, a big career, you know, and she said, I want you to start something now before the book is out. And um, because then whether it's well received or badly received, you will have begun something. And so, um, and for me, that I've always followed that advice with every book, like before it's published, before I have a book published, I try to start another book. So That's that, yeah, yeah, so that I have something in the works because, you know, you find that you're really vulnerable at that moment where the book is out and mm-hmm. you're sort of like, uh, you should, you know, you shouldn't do it, but you're like refreshing. <laughs> Lots <Yeah>. of fun. <laughs> I refresh constantly. I wake up in the middle of the night and look at oh, no, you have what's to going on that. on Goodreads, what's on ranking. No, no, don't do that. That you're gonna drive yourself insane. I, I, I wouldn't do that. I mean like the review, like the it's like that weekend when they all come in, you're like, oh, right. God, what are you gonna say? So um, and I do read those reviews, I think because I think you can learn from them, but I've always tried to have something else um, going because you know it's I just I because I feel like, okay, if it's, if the reviews are bad, then you could just go back to what you're working on and go, okay, I can do better. I can learn. I can. And then if they're good, you're like, yeah, encouragement to keep going. So that's, that was like the best advice I've ever gotten. I think about that. And I'm really grateful to her for that because I've kept it, you know, as a practice through like even to now. That's great. Great advice to always have another project going and so you know it helps you to deal with the ebbs and the flows of uh, you know ups and downs of this industry and it Um, reminds you why you're in it right it reminds you like for me that's the the really more than the public side of writing it's really the the most joyful part for me is when i'm in the in the story and you know as as Zadie smith said i think like in this essay the crafty feeling where the people in your life look feel less real than the people in your story <laughs> so I live for that moment and so just the, for me it's the love of like the, the process that is like the most you know uh, fun element part of it so uh, so it, it actually brings you brings me back to that space where I just enjoy the, the things that I can actually control about the whole process which is the writing beautiful uh, questions are coming in for you so I'm going to go to those questions now um, the first one is Edwige has achieved so much in her writing career. What does she still want to achieve in the future of her writing? More writing. <laughs> <laughs> More of the same. More, yeah, I want to, you know, I want to grow. It's, uh, it's like I, every time I just remember Maya Angelou saying that, you know, how she had those yellow pads in the hotel room and every book was like starting over. So um, at this point, because I've written quite a few things, you, you know, it's like, I don't want to repeat myself. I, yeah. I, you know, I just want to, I want the privilege and of being able to write more and, and publish more. Um, really, because I, I feel really, like I said, I love what I do. And I feel like really blessed that people are willing to read, read it. So I just want to do more of that until I'm like, in my 80s. <laughs> I'll never retire. I was like, I'll never retire. <laughs> yes. Okay. Here's another one. Um, do you feel that your dual cultural uh, experiences enrich or hinder your creativity? Well, I believe, you know, it's like um, I, we're all contained multitudes that I think, I, I think that's always an advantage, right? Because as a, as a creator, right, as someone who's writing about other people, um, we're writing, we want to write multifaceted people. Yeah. We want to write complex people and not just in terms of, uh, you know, logistical identity or like nationality or ethnicity or gender, you know, preference or 
uh, or, you know, or work or anything like that, but we want to write really, really complicated people. So I think the more facets we have to, not just who we are, but to our lives, the more exposure we have to different, uh, different kinds of people, different ways of life, I think that adds to the, the, how, how we can create. So um, I see whatever growth that comes through experience or that comes to being as an advantage, you know, as a kind of another set of windows that that is open to 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 me in terms of like the, the kind of people and characters I can create and write about. Mm -hmm. There was a continuation of this question, getting back to what we had talked about earlier with dual identity. She said, does her dual experience present obstacles in terms of not wanting to hurt or offend either group? Yeah, well, it's, it's kind of like what you were saying. I think for, for many of us, right, it's what hurts when you're accused of like writing something that, that um, misrepresents or, or maligns your, your, your people is that, for example, you know, I would be the first like to be like, oh my gosh, you're talking badly about my people. <laughs> you know? right. And then, so when it's like, it turns, you know, back to you, it's double hurt because that's, you don't want to do harm, right? You want to do no harm. Um, but there's, it's just, there's, you, you also can't lie, right? Lie in the way that's beyond fiction. You can't be like, so sometimes people are like, oh, why don't you write about the beaches? Why don't you write about like, like someone else is writing about the beaches. I, you know, this is like what I, you know, I want to write about the complexity. I also write about the beaches, like Claire of the Sea Light is all on a beach, but it's not a touristy beach, you know? So, right. so I think um, sometimes the, the complexity that you're reaching for can be painful to, to people, but um, I, even people, you know, close to me, even people in my own family, you know, that's, I think that's the hardest where people are like, oh, come on, shut up. Just like tell a happy story. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we, but ultimately you have to tell the story that haunts you, mm -hmm. um, the story that might even frighten you to tell, you know, the story that you're shaking as you write, the story that you're crying as you write, sometimes that, that story. Also it could be the story that you're laughing as you write, but it has to be, there has to be something in it that really moves you, that really makes you, because sometimes if it's a novel, it's a long haul, as you know now, Nancy, yes, right? now I know, yes. Yeah. So you're going to invest so much emotion, so much time, so much, you're going to miss so many things to write something. It might as well be the thing you want to write, not the thing everybody else wants you to write. Yeah, and there's that saying, no emotion in the writer, no emotion in the reader. Yeah. So you have to feel it if you want your reader to feel it. Yes. Um, this is going to be our final question. Um, and this one is to both of us. And it asks us about um, who or what instilled your love for reading. And I'll just take that one first. Uh, I've just always been a reader. Um, as a child, my parents read to me when I was little. I remember still my mom taking me to the public library, King Branch Library on the south side of Chicago. Um, and usually in many communities, you hear King Street, King Boulevard, King Drive, and you think, people think about violence, people think about the inner city code for black people, you know, but it was King Branch was really a refuge for me in my community, because that's where I was really exposed to books and to reading. Um, so that's really where I discovered my love for reading. Um, I read in the beginning so many Nancy Drew mysteries. Mm. I love those. Um, just, yeah, I still have like more than 60 of those. Wow. And somebody was just, yeah, I still, I know I kept those. I just love them. And uh, somebody was asking me about this recently. And I realized looking back on it now that the books I read as a kid, Nancy Drew mysteries, I read the Beverly Cleary books, you know, Biz Beezus and Ramona and um, Judy Bloom, Are You There, God, It's Me, Margaret. And all those books, none of those were books that centered Black characters at all. Black characters were non-existent in those books. And I didn't even think about it because I didn't know to think about it when I was a child reading. Um, but yeah, but that's my experience with reading. And so now that I get to put characters like myself with my own life experiences on the page, I consider it just such a privilege to do so. So what about you? Uh, who or what instilled your love for reading, Edwidge? Well, it's funny. So the first book I, my uncle gave me when I was four was the Madeline book, right? In the House of Paris that was covered with vines. It was in French. 
And then I started from that wanting to make books with my brothers. And we read a lot of growing up. My brothers had a lot of um, what they called like Westerns, but cartoons. They had those books and they had the French like Asterix and those books that they got from France. So I read those a lot. And then it, it, I read, um, the first book I read in English was my Angelou's I Know Why the Caged Bird Sing. Oh, yeah. And I was like blown away by that. I just couldn't believe how honest it was, like how mm. she, she bared her soul. Um, but I read, I read a lot of Nancy Drews too and Hardy Boys. Okay, yeah. Uh, yes, <laughs> like yeah, my, yeah. my um, girlfriends and I, like we, we actually read those, like we were big readers in church. Like I, that's like sounds <laughs> awful. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> or like sneaking, like doing the long sermons or reading in church. So we read the, a lot of those in church. With I read a lot of Harlequins too. Yeah, I did uh, too. Harlequin yeah. and Silhouette. Yeah. And then I remember like some, if you're of a particular age, you'll remember like uh, passing out wifey and in, in, in junior high school with the sex scenes highlighted all highlighted <laughs> yes 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 i remember that was like forever by julie bloom was the yes same. and forever yeah. it's like all that stuff seemed like so risque back in the day so yeah along with the wonderful black literature you know i was also reading this and i and i thought i mean that's that was really wonderful like the combined joy of reading mm-hmm. when you're when you're little and um just like finding the pleasure. That's why, for example, I don't, a lot of people restrict what their kids read. Like I don't really, can't read like, but I let my girls read like what they find pleasure in. Like my youngest loves graphic novels. I was like, yeah, just read all the, mm-hmm. as long as you check in with me, Jacqueline Woodson once in a while. And like, right, oh, right. Oh, I love Jacqueline you know, it's, it's a boy. Like you read some of the, you know, like what I guide you away. Yeah. Yeah. I love Jacqueline Woodson too. And I, and, and can you imagine, like, if we had Jacqueline Woodson? I know, back in the day, can you right? imagine what books yeah. I would be able to say I read as a kid? Yeah, they would be but, Jacqueline. but I think there's other books, too, that were, like, in a way, it was a kind of voyeurism that was interesting for us, because I was like, oh, that little girl is so free. She's going all over the world solving mysteries. How- <laughs> I know, I wanted to be in that blue convertible, you yeah. know, solving mysteries with Bess and George as best friends, and yeah, yeah, yeah. I was obsessed, so... This has been fabulous, Edwidge. I could talk Likewise. to you all day, but... Uh, well, thank yeah. you. This was really fun. Thank you for doing it. Yeah, wonderful conversation. Um, thank you. Thank you to the audience out there for watching. Uh, this has just been tremendous. Um, I'd like to encourage everyone to buy everything inside. It is fabulous. You will just sink into the stories of that show collection. Show them your book, too. Oh, okay. <laughs> all right. So folks, a little commercial for my book. Yes. Kindest yes. Lie, uh, coming your way February 9th from William Morrow, HarperCollins, story of race, class, and family at the dawn of the Obama era. So I'm excited wow. for people to read it, and you can pre-order it everywhere books are sold. So buy both of our books. <laughs> that would be the best thing ever. Uh, also, want to encourage everybody to blaze the vote. Please go out and vote. Make your voice heard. It matters. Yes, boat people. Um, Thank you again, and take care, everybody. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. I'm Tricia Blanchett for a Mighty Blaze podcast. Tune in next time for our conversation with the inimitable Cheryl Strayed. Until then, keep your blaze burning and your pages turning.